It's 906 at WPTF Radio. The AM version is on 680, and the FM version is on 98.5. And as I tell you many times, be sure that you've got both buttons, the AM and the FM buttons, set on your call radio. I'm Tom Kearney, and I here every night, Monday through Friday, from 9 to 10, with a little bit of live and real-time radio. And it's kind of potpourri, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, we don't do much with politics, but we do... Uh, Things like the weather and the economy, and tonight we're going to do history. One of our oldest friends, Dr. James Chris, Professor Emeritus of History at North Carolina State University, and whatever he may tell you, he is still connected to Texas by a long, long umbilical cord, but that's all right. Uh, it, it, he is uh, good at promoting and, and writing the history of Texas. Dr. Jim, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? I want to make sure you were hearing me, so you could, so you could, you know, say Curry's line if you wanted to. But no, I'm, no, I'm still connected with that umbilical cord. <laughs> well, I, I didn't mean it as an insult. I thought it was a good thing. You, you that, that was your, your, your. Uh, it's the way I feel about barbecue in Wayne County, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so, the trouble is that COVID has canceled three of my trips back to Texas, and that's really got me. You, you uh, need a resupply. It's kind of like my sister came down to NC State. She has three grandchildren at NC State. She said she needed a grandma, grandma supply, you know, and, and indeed she did. But in any event, uh, Dr. Crisp uh, taught history at, at uh, NC State for, I'm doing a rough thing here, about 45 years, Jim, is that sound right? And uh, he's recently has become Professor Emeritus, but he is, been working on a book about a man named Herman Ehrenberg, and he's going to talk about Herman Ehrenberg tonight, but I think probably less about Herman Ehrenberg and more about the story of Jim Crisp trying to find out about Herman Ehrenberg. Uh, Dr. Crisp has written numerous articles and other things, chapters and books and whatever, about things that have to do with Texas. In fact, many years ago, we spent a lot of time talking about Davy Crockett. And why did Davy die? But now the, the, the focus has turned to another citizen of the, the state of, uh, well, uh, actually it was the Republic of Texas uh, most of the time that we're talking about here. And indeed that's the period of the Texas history that Dr. Chris prefers to concentrate on uh, and write about Herman Ehrenberg. Um, I do want to recommend his book to you before I turn it over to him, and I'm just going to keep it on the sidelines. Uh, he he have read a book that was published, I think, in 2004, Jim. Does that sound right? Yeah, late 2004. And I'm trying to get my cursor to go so I can, I can get the uh, get the uh, the title right. You may have to, the, the short title. I've got it. The short title is Sleuthing the Alamo, and the longer title is Davy Crockett's Last Stand and Other Mysteries of the Texas Revolution. And I recommend the book to you. I told him something tonight I didn't think he knew that when he sent me a copy of it, I thought, well, I've talked to Jim about this over the years. I don't need to read this book. But I read it, and it was it was, it was was a plus. I learned a lot more. And so uh, uh, don't think you've got it all down yet. You Go ahead. And, I, and it's still in print as far as I know. It, it is still in print. I actually got a royalty check the other week, the other day. That's That's wonderful. Uh, you're the only person I've known who has actually gotten, well, I mean, there are lots of people who've gotten royalty checks, but I just don't know many of them. But, uh, but I did really enjoy the book, and it's a little bit about Davy Crockett and a little bit about sleuthing. And you're going to tell us about... point out that 
you know, all Texans are not illiterate like me, uh, two of them in the last year, uh, guys who grew up in Texas, uh, like I did, uh, won Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, ben Johnson, ben, I'm sorry, Ben Mosher for his biography of Susan Sontag and my friend Caleb McDaniel, uh, Pulitzer Prize in History for a book called The Sweet Taste of Liberty. And I highly recommend those books to people. Okay, well, uh, we'll come back to them at the end. I always like to have a little, about two minutes on bibliography at, at the end of the program. Sure. They're out of my field a little bit, but um, especially Susan Sontag. But um, I've known Ben for a few years uh, by email. He lives in Europe, <clears throat> but grew up in Houston, and I know his parents. And seeing him win a Pulitzer Prize was really a lot of fun. So who is this guy, Herman Ehrenberg? Yeah, I was going to, well, you and I had the same idea. Well, I was going to say, where did you meet Herman Ehrenberg? Figuratively I met speaking. him in the basement of the University of Texas Tower Library back in 1972. Um, I was researching stuff for my dissertation. Stuff is a technical term we use in grade school. <laughs> but I was reading about um, that period, especially the revolution. And uh, I ran across a master's thesis that had been done in 1925. And the, the thesis was not original work so much as it was a translation of a memoir written in German and published in Germany in 1843 by a young man who had been a teenage volunteer with the Texas Army and the Texas Revolution. That's Herman Ehrenberg. And I read it, and I thought it was kind of uh, over the top in some ways. He seemed to be exaggerating some things, but it was interesting. I read the whole thing and kind of filed it away in my memory. And then roughly 20 years later, in 1992, I was doing a year at Carolina on Rockefeller Fellowship, studying the relationship of Anglos and Mexicans in Texas, which I've done a lot of in my time, and I ran across a speech written apparently, allegedly, by Sam Houston, and it was a bitterly racist speech, and racist has a technical meaning. It means that people of different ancestries can't live in peace with each other. It means that your, your character is determined by your ancestry. Racist is not just a term you use as an epithet about somebody. It has an actual meaning. And some people are, and some people aren't. But I knew that Houston essentially wasn't, especially because this speech was bitterly not only anti-Mexican, but anti-Indian. He was saying all kinds of awful things about both Mexicans and Indians. Now, if you knew Sam Houston, he called you a half-Indian, which is what he called the Mexicans in this speech. That was a compliment. Because Sam Houston had been adopted by the Cherokee Nation, not only informally adopted as an adolescent, but formally got citizenship as an adult, spoke fluent Cherokee because he had lived with the Cherokee as an adolescent, and was famous for writing countless speeches and newspaper articles defending Indian intelligence, Native American rights, legal rights, 
land holding rights, all that kind of thing. Plus, I knew he was very friendly with a number of Mexicans in Texas that he had fought with during the Revolution. And I mean fought with, not fought against. Well, no, I would say, if you had asked me, I would say I thought he was married to an Indian woman at one His time. His second wife, uh, Tiana yeah. Rogers, uh, whom he married in Indian Territory, was Native American. Um, and he, when he went to Texas, he asked her if she wanted to go with him, and she declined, and so they got a divorce under Cherokee law. Yeah, Margaret Lee, who was the mother of his children, was his third wife. Uh, his first marriage only lasted a few weeks in Tennessee. And when it fell apart, that's when he left and went out to what we now call Oklahoma, where he married Tiana Rogers. But anyway, here I knew this speech could not have been written by Houston. So I started going backwards through the documents. Where did the guy who cited this speech get the speech? Where did they get it? Where in turn did they get it? Without going through the details, I had to go about five steps backwards to find that it came from Hermann Ehrenberg's memoir written in German. Can I stop you right here? Yeah. We need to take a break. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to stay in about three minutes. Dr. Chris will resume and tell you what he learned about Hermann Ehrenberg. Uh, we'll be back uh, following this. Talking with Dr. James Smith, Professor Emeritus of History at NC State University, and he's just in be, being a sleuth as historian, come onto the trail of Herman Ehrenberg. Dr. Crisp is yours. Well, thanks. That was very funky music, by the way. That takes me back. Uh, that uh, point at which we stopped was that I had discovered that this speech, allegedly Sam Houston's, was written by Herman Ehrenberg. Um, and without getting into too many details. I spent the Christmas vacation of 1992-93 between semesters um, comparing the original German text and his master's thesis that I had read at the University of Texas 20 years earlier, which was very poorly translated, I must say, and a 1935 printed, published English translation by a different translator that had been ruthlessly censored about a third of it just cut out. Anything that was embarrassing, all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, any alcohol, anything that wouldn't suit your little kid had been cut out because the guy who published the book wanted to have it adopted by the Texas public schools uh, at the time of the Texan centennial of the revolution. So I was able to write an article that proved that Houston hadn't given the speech, but Ehrenberg had. And at that point, I discovered that no one really knew who Ehrenberg was. There were three, at least three stories about him uh, that were circulating. Um, one of them was that he was the son of a royal Prussian official who had gotten thrown out of the university and had to flee to America because of his student rebel activity. This was written by a guy who got thrown out of the university and had to flee to America because his student rebel activity had nothing to do with Ehrenberg. Another guy was Rabbi Henry Cohen from the synagogue in Galveston who said that Ehrenberg was Jewish. Well, obviously Rabbi Cohen was Jewish. Turns out Ehrenberg wasn't. So you had these various stories floating around about who he was. And I just started getting intrigued by this and started digging and discovered that a fellow out in Arizona had done a lot of preliminary research 
by mail. This guy's name was Dr. Benjamin Sachs. He was a retired medical doctor who corresponded with German archivists. And this is the 50s, so this was behind the Iron Curtain to get the information from the Eastern German archives. And Sachs was able to prove by a lot of work who this guy Ehrenberg was. And so I began to try to collect. Every time I went to Texas to do research, every time I got invited to give a speech at a different university, I would call ahead and ask the archivist, if you got anything on this Herman Ehrenberg guy, pull it out for me. I want to look at it. And I found a lot of really interesting stuff just that way, just by serendipity. Um, and then, as you mentioned earlier, I got a Davy Crockett detour. I started trying to solve the issue of how Davy Crockett died. And one of the things I found in the papers of Jose Enrique de la Peña, who was the Mexican lieutenant at the Alamo, who had seen Davy Crockett die, was a, a copy that had been made for him, 28 legal-sized pages in manuscript of the itinerary of a Mexican battalion. It was the battalion from San Luis Potosí. So I copied the whole thing, all 28 pages, and took it home so I could read it and translated it at my leisure. And sure enough, right in the middle of that, they found Herman Ehrenberg. They found this Prussian youth. He was from the country of Prussia, which was now is now part of Germany, but there was no such thing as Germany at the time. They found this Prussian youth, and, they, and he gave them the same alibi that Ehrenberg talked about in his memoir. He said that, oh, well, I, I, I got sick with malaria, and the people I was staying with put me up, and when they had to flee the Mexican army, they had to leave me behind. And is there a war on or what? In other words, he was playing dumb and giving them an alibi, and the alibi that the Mexican army wrote down in their itinerary of what they did day by day during the Revolution was exactly the same alibi that Ehrenberg had, had given. So that's not the story he told in his memoir. Though he said that he just walked right into the Mexican camp and presented himself and demanded to speak to the commanding general. And then there's this long chapter with the dialogue between Ehrenberg and the commanding general. I don't believe it for a minute. He put speeches in, in, in the Mexican general's mouth. He put speeches in Houston's mouth. He put speeches in other people's mouth. And so one of the things I had to do over the 28 or so years I was working on this book from start to finish, from 1992 until this past year, was figure out not only when he was lying and embellishing, but why he was lying and embellishing. And he usually did it for political reasons. He was a German Democrat, small d, at a time when democracy was anathema to the ruling crown heads of Europe and to the people who were ruling the German state. Freedom of speech, freedom of press, uh, democratic rights, all of those were considered heresies in Prussia, in the Austrian Empire, and all those places where he wanted to see a democratic revolution. And so he would put a lot of politics, European politics, into his memoir about Texas. And what made it very convenient is that there was another German, he was actually a Prussian, uh, named Colonel Juan Jose Holtinger. Uh, that's his Hispanic name. 
but he was a German serving in the Mexican army who turned out to be not only an artillery officer, but one of the captors of Hermann Ehrenberg. Ehrenberg was captured twice. First, after a battle in which the Texans had been surrounded and had to surrender. And, after, and then after he escaped something called the Goliad Massacre, where they took him and 400 other men out and shot them at point-blank range, well, they missed him. There were 28 men out of those 400 who got away, either wounded or not. He was wounded across the forehead with a saber and carried the scar for the rest of his life. But he was recaptured, and the man who was in charge of his captivity at the Texan port of Matagorda after his second capture was this guy Juan Jose, Juan Jose Holtzinger, Colonel Holtzinger. So by criticizing Holtzinger, who was an aristocrat, who was Catholic, who was a, who didn't believe in democracy but believed in the dictatorship of Santa Ana, he was always talking about two things at once, Texas versus Mexicans and democratic Germans versus autocratic Germans. So it's a very complicated book, and I had to spend a lot of time checking virtually everything he said against the documents that have survived. And sometimes he's an absolutely brilliant and accurate eyewitness, and sometimes he's making things up. And I would have to explain when he was doing that and why he was doing it and what the actual story was. He would, create, he would even create some imaginary personalities. He invents a Texan man by the name of John Adams, who say, he said was a New York Yankee who had come to Texas. And the reason he does it is to compare Adams, this know-it-all, jack-of-all-trades, can-do kind of guy, take-charge kind of guy, with the Mexicans, who were these servile, apathetic um, people who were not nearly as you know, as he would have put it, 10 of them weren't worth one good Texan. Now, that's his attitude. It's not exactly historically accurate, but that's the message he was trying to get across. He became an absolutely loyal member of the Texan Army and then for a few years, citizen of the Texas Republic. And then he went back to Germany. After, he served as a Texas Ranger briefly out on the frontier and contracted what he politely called a bowel complaint. And his doctors sent him first to New Orleans and then back to Europe in the 1840s to get medical treatment. And while he was at the University of City of Halle in Germany he, in 1842, he wrote his memoir. Okay, let's stop right there. We got him back in Germany. It's a good place to stop. Right, I was I was waiting to kind of pounce there because it's about time for the half-hour news, Jake. Dr. Jim Crisp is talking about being a sleuth. A historian really is a detective. Uh, there's actually a book by that title. And we'll come back to sleuthing right after this. 9.33 at WPTF. Tom Kearney here. Tomorrow night is a nostalgia night. I'm not sure what we're going to be nostalgic about, but tune in and see, and it will be... Uh, consequently, an open phone night. Friday night will be Friday night trivia, and I think it's going to be music trivia this week. And coming up next week, uh, Stephen, my brother, is going to be back, and we're going to continue our talks about what's going to happen to the movie industry and uh, maybe talk a little bit about when the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes and those kinds of things are going to be happening, if they're going to be happening this year. But tonight, we're talking 
history. Uh, a little bit uh, historical content, but a lot about how history is being done by a detective, a historian as detective, Dr. Jim Crisp, who is the author of uh, Sleuthing the Alamo, which is a, a, an interesting book, one that uh, is worth your attention. And it's still in print and available. Your bookstore can probably get it for you, and I think you can find it at the usual places, Amazon, in other words, uh, Barnes & Noble, and so on. Dr. Crisp is a former, well, he's a professor emeritus. It means he's not really former at NC State. And he had, uh, well, Jim, um, you had uh, Ehrenberg uh, in, in the, working in the Republic of Texas. I, I read the, the, uh, the Wikipedia account, and I noticed one of the first things they say is they refer to you, whoever wrote the article, and the fact that you say that most of the stuff that had been written about Ehrenberg wasn't true. And so, Including with, some of the stuff in the Wikipedia account. Um, uh, a lot of the stuff that's written about Ehrenberg is false. I'd say 80% of what has been published about him is not true, which is really kind of sad. But, you know, garbage in, garbage out. People write things down that don't know anything, and then other people copy them. And while I'm on that subject, let me uh, explain to people what the title of this new book is uh, in case they want to get it next spring. Uh, the book ought to be out in March or April probably April, and uh, the title will be Inside the Texas Revolution. This, the subtitle is The Enigmatic Memoir of Herman Ehrenberg. And it's enigmatic because, like I was explaining before the break, a lot of stuff he says isn't true. Uh, one of the things I'm working on right now is for a presentation I'm giving by Zoom, by virtual presentation, in Houston in April, uh, and it's what Ehrenberg had to say about the Battle of the Alamo and the Battle of San Jacinto. Well, he wasn't at either battle. And what he's doing is kind of giving the popular version that was circulating in the early Texas Republic of what happened in those battles. And so well, uh, uh, you you've given me an opening. Uh, he was in, I don't know how to pronounce it, is it Bayar? San Antonio de Bayar? But he was in the Alamo in late December when yeah, he the, the, a few nights in the Alamo, but he left before there was another battle there. Right, right. He was not there when the when the, the catastrophe occurred or when the final days occurred or whatever right. you want to call it. There. He was in Goliad when the catastrophe occurred there, and that's when they took those men out to shoot them. But anyway, the, the title of the book is Inside the Texas Revolution, The Enigmatic Memoir of Herman Ehrenberg. So now about his memoir, he, he was living in Halle in Prussia, in 1843, he sent his manuscript across the border to Saxon, to the city of Leipzig, uh, where it was published by Otto Wiegand, who was known as a fairly radical or at least liberal publisher. And Ehrenberg has a lot of criticism of pol politicians and the political status quo, so he had to kind of send it out of Prussia to get it published. But it became the most popular book about Texas in Germany, in the German language in the 1840s. It went through three editions in three years. And for a long time, we thought that Ehrenberg didn't come back to the United States until 1844. And we thought that because of a misdated letter. He had sent a letter from Hulla to the Texan diplomat in Paris 
And when I got a hold of the letter at an archive in Texas, the letter had fragmented to a certain extent, and the original date had fragmented off. And someone had put in, in their own handwriting, the date of February 9, 1844. And I and a lot of other historians took that as meaning, okay, this is what the date was. It was actually a date of a postmark they had gotten from the back of the letter. And there were three different postmarks on the letter. What probably happened is that the letter had chased the Texan diplomat all over Europe because he went to Italy and England and France. And I had just about given up on knowing when Ehrenberg had ever come back to the United States. But uh, as I was doing the final proofreading of my manuscript for the publisher, I decided that from what Ehrenberg had said, he really, really liked the city of New Orleans. It was his favorite city in America. That's where he signed up to fight in the Texas Revolution. And so I just decided not to filter by year, because we had looked all through all the ports in 1844 and came up blank. Because what we're looking at are passenger lists from ships arriving from overseas. So I just said, okay, give me a passenger list of people coming into New Orleans any year, anytime. And it took me about... 20 minutes to find Herman Ehrenberg arriving on a ship that left Hamburg and went directly to New Orleans in the summer of 1843. And so I was able to solve that little mystery by not assuming that the date I had been given for a letter was the correct date. And so it reminds me of what Robert Caro said. I'm going to clean up his language a little bit. But he said, read every page and assume nothing. Robert Carroll is the man who's working on his fifth volume of a biography of Lyndon Johnson. And he had earlier written the biography of Robert Moses in New York City. Carroll is a brilliant research historian. And his advice is what you have to take. Read every blankety-blank page and assume nothing. And we had been assuming that that date was correct. And because it wasn't, I was able to follow Ehrenberg from Humburg to New Orleans and then up to St. Louis. And then in the spring of 44, what do you think he did? Spring of 44. On horseback, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And from there went to Hawaii, and then down into the South Seas, and over to South America, and then up to California. And what was going on in California by the time he got there was the Mexican War between the United States and Mexico. And so he at first just started bringing retail products, wholesale to retail, from Hawaii to Baja, California, where the American Army and Navy were. But before long, his old habits of the Texas Revolution kicked in, and he started fighting as a civilian volunteer for the American Army and actually got a commendation that went all, up, all the way up to the congressional record for his heroism and bravery in fighting for the Americans. And then the end of the war. He thought he was going to stay in Baja, California, but because it was given back to Mexico by the treaty, he went up to California with others from Baja, went up to Monterey, the old capital of Alta California. And what do you think is going on in the early spring of 1848? We're about to have a gold rush, aren't we? It is a gold rush, and he plunges into it and spends the next few years prospecting, 
in California, and then finally settling down for a little while in San Francisco. He never settled down anywhere for long. And when he heard about the Gadsden Purchase, which brought Tucson and southern Arizona into the United States, he decided to go with the party that was exploring that area. And he remained in southern Arizona for the rest of his life, became kind of a founding father of the Arizona Territory. Now, in all of these adventures, he leaves, leaves little bits and pieces behind him, ships manifests and court records and census data and newspaper articles and all the kinds of things that just don't come up all at once. You have It's like a mosaic. Someone once told me that Ehrenberg's life was like taking a, a, a bag of tiles that had been in a mosaic of Ehrenberg, and starting in Germany and going over New Orleans and Washington, D.C., and Texas and Arizona and California and Hawaii and Oregon and even Tahiti, dropping these tiles and then leaving historians to pick them up later, not knowing exactly what they are and what they're going to tell them. And so there's a lot of luck and a lot of shoe leather that, uh, goes into writing something like this and researching something. I must say that I liked Ehrenberg much better when I finished working on him than when I started working on him. Uh, you know, it was that racist speech that he put in Sam Houston's mouth. That, well, yeah, that's when you when you jumped on it. I have a couple of questions I want to ask you. One, uh, how did he afford? How could he afford all the moving around he did? It must have cost him something. Well, he left for. America, he wrote to the Texan diplomat and said it would cost him $40 to get from Hamburg to America on steerage, you know, in a cheap boat. And so what I expect happened is that as soon as he gave the manuscript to the publisher, he got an advance on the book. And he used that advance not only to go from southern Germany or central Germany to Hamburg to New Orleans, he was in St. Louis by July, and then he took the Oregon Trail. It doesn't cost a lot to buy a horse and get some grub and a rifle to shoot game and head off to Oregon. It didn't cost nearly as much to travel then. But he, he crossed an ocean and he crossed a continent within a year after he sent in his manuscript to get it to be published. So yeah. we don't know for sure, but that's where we think he got the money. Recognizing that this is a family program, you know, and I was paying attention when I was reading, uh, where are the women in this story? Are there any? Did he ever stop and, and chase the lovely senorita or he never anything? Married. He never had a family. There is a rumor, which I do not believe, that he had a love affair with the Queen of Tahiti in the South Sea. But the guy who was the only person who's responsible for that story is a notorious liar by the name of Charles Poston, who was at one time Ehrenberg's business partner. But he told a lot of stories about Ehrenberg, and every one I've been able to check out has turned out not to be true. I can't, it's hard to, dis, it's hard to disprove a negative, or to prove a negative, I guess you'd say. But I'm an unromantic skeptic. I'll, I'll tell you something, even though this is a family program. When I was at Arizona, uh, 
using the Arizona State Archives of the late Dr. Benjamin Snacks, the man who had solved the mystery of who Ehrenberg was and who his family was. The very first question they asked me when I was working, when they heard I was working on Ehrenberg all week long, was, do you think he was gay? I said, well, the thought actually never entered my mind. I have no idea. I know he was universally loved. He was a very, very popular guy. He was murdered by unknown parties at a stagecoach station on his way back to Arizona from Los Angeles right after the Civil War. And no one knows who shot him. He was shot right through the chest. We need to stop and take another break, but, but let me introduce this something. There, there may be nothing, too, but I know at some point there are a lot of Germans in Texas, and I mean, this may be too. This may be too early, but the question, and we can answer it after we take the break, is whether he had much affinity for or connection with them. But we're talking about Herman Ehrenberg. Uh, he has been the the object of uh, sleuthing by Dr. Jim Crisp, and I think Dr. Crisp told us that his book on uh, Ehrenberg. Is going to be coming out in April. Maybe we'll get him to go over that again. We're going to go into the last quarter of our program in just a couple of minutes. Along with Dr. James Chris, professor of history, actually, uh, uh, professor of history, uh, I've lost my word, Jim, but he's retired now, but he's not retired from being an historian. The fancy and, word uh, is emeritus. Emeritus, that's right. Emeritus. They, when you're as old as I am, and you're actually only about two or three years younger than I am, but words like emeritus become kind of fuzzy, and yeah, it's a rock and roll thing, is what it is. It sometimes it pops... means that um, you get to keep your email address, and you get to pick up some mail in the history department, but you don't get an office. So, okay. All right. All right. During well, COVID, then... it's been just as I just as soon not go in anyway. Well, you get to be introduced as. Professor Emeritus, but Dr. Crisp has been pursuing a fellow named Herman Ehrenberg, and the book's going to come out in in, in April, and I've been, been uh, of course, doing this program all the time that Dr. Crisp is doing the search, and in, in earlier days, we didn't talk about Ehrenberg, but we talked about uh, Davy Crockett and the Alamo and things like that, And uh, but uh, uh, I, I wanted to... Uh, well, I can maybe... point out while I'm thinking about it that the Alamo is in San Antonio. And the yes. first big battle that Ehrenberg was involved in in, the, in December of 1835 was the Texan capture of, Alam, of San Antonio from the Mexicans. And that was about three months before the Alamo business, two and a half months before the Alamo yeah. business. And he's yeah. a very, very good eyewitness. Uh, at one point, he says, well, this Mississippian right next to me got, got shot in the head and died. And he didn't tell you who it is. But by studying the after-action reports and the casualty figures, I was able to tell you exactly who that man was that he reported on, even though he doesn't give us his name. So there's a lot of detective work, as you suggested, that goes into doing something like this. Well, indeed there is. I, I, I have to admit, growing up and learning the general history of of the Alamo and so on. I had thought at one time, for instance, that everybody that was in there was killed, and that, of course, is not true. Not everyone was killed in combat, and there were also some civilian uh, non-combatants there, uh, a slave or two, 
uh, some Mexican women, some of whom were married to the Texans, uh, some of whom were married to uh, natives of San Antonio who fought inside the Alamo. I once met a fellow here in Raleigh by the name of John Esparza, and he was directly related to the brothers who were at the Alamo. One was on the inside fighting with the Texans, and one was on the outside as a Mexican army reservist. Uh, the Texas Revolution split a lot of families, especially Hispanic families, in two, but blood was thicker than water, and both branches of the Esparza family are still in San Antonio. Well, one of the things that you have only started to touch on tonight, because you, we don't really have enough room for you, but is to remind people, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my soapbox now, that history is not as simple as it might be. And I spent some time chasing a PhD myself, and I found out that uh, sometimes when you go for dates or where people were or what they did, those people consulting the records just adopt the viewpoint that suits them best and, and so on, and they believe what they want to believe. What and I tell they, my students is that um, I wrote a lot of letters back to my mother when I was in college, and if they're using somebody's letters and they're assuming everything that that person says is true and that he tells the whole truth and nothing but the truth, they don't understand why people write letters. In other words, newspapers have mistruths, untruths, so do personal letters. Well, one of the things you've got to do is put all your cards on the table and compare what virtually everything says and then come to the best guesstimate you can as to what happened and then and then check that out. And well, then, well, then that leads us back, and we've got about a minute left now. I can't run over. But the gentleman you mentioned earlier, I've watched several interviews with Robert Caro to, uh, when he talks about his methods. and. Yeah. He keeps talking to people until he's convinced he has the the right version of the story. And one like of the you just said, he puts say is that you don't want to try to verify your hypothesis. You want to try to falsify it. Because if you just try to prove it's true, you probably will succeed. But if you try to falsify it, you really try hard to make sure what you said is not true. And you can't do it if you can't falsify it. Then heck, it might be true. I'm going, to have, I'm going to spend all tonight after I leave you on this radio program trying to, to work that over in my mind, and we'll have to talk about it sometime. Jim, thanks for being on with us tonight, and I hope we can have another report from you as we get closer to the time that the book comes out. And anytime you want to come and talk historiography, I think that would be wonderful. That's fine. There's, uh, there are other books out there, too. Okay. Jim Crist, Professor of History. I'll give you a call off the air a little bit later, Jim. Thanks for being on with us tonight. Uh, and uh, the Adventures of Herman Ehrenberg, something to think about. Tomorrow night we're going to have a nostalgia night. We hope you will join us then. And uh, Friday night is Friday Night Trivia.